Cash was struggling even before the pandemic hit. With Google and Apple Pay available at the cashiers, and PayPal and Venmo offering instantaneous payment options to replace dollar bills or the paper check. But the shift away from cash, once a convenience issue, is now also a safety one. CQ Roll Call financial services reporter Jim Saxa has this report on the future of cash. All right, so it's going to be 2404, so you have the swipe right there. Like a lot of small business owners, Tim Sturm is trying to make the best of a bad situation. Sturm owns a bar. Well, it's called Southland Beer. Southland is known for its craft beers. Only five years ago, Storm was a librarian living in Sacramento. His wife was also a librarian, but she lived down in L.A. Something had to change. And, uh... My wife said, well, why don't you uh, come down to Los Angeles and open a bar? So Storm quit his job, sold his house, and opened Southland. And we're in the Koreatown neighborhood of Los Angeles. It's a small spot tucked in the corner of a shopping plaza, the kind of place you might not notice at first. Our attitude is very casual and friendly, kind of like Cheers. And uh, we have a lot of regular customers, and we know a lot of names. At least that's how things were before the pandemic hit. You probably don't recognize me because I got my mask on, dude. It happens, unfortunately. It does. It's harder to spot a familiar face these days, but Southland is still the kind of place beer geeks can go for all the latest releases from local breweries. Laughing Monk, Chase the Rainbows, Sunshine Opportunity, and the Zodiac Gemini. Cool. NCI, you real quick? Yes. Southland shut its doors in March when the coronavirus first started to spread rapidly. It reopened a few weeks later, but just for takeout. Six-packs and growlers have always been a part of Southland's business, but now it's all they do. And that's not the only change Sturm made to deal with the contagion. Southland doesn't take cash anymore. Mostly just for sanitary reasons, I guess. Um, Not wanting to touch money. Not wanting to have things exchanged between customers and employees. He's not alone. Lots of companies have treated cash like it's dirty money since the pandemic started. Even though health officials say the risk of catching COVID-19 from handling money is really small. This shift away from paper money may be one of the epidemic's longest lasting side effects. For Sturm, the decision to go cashless was easy. He's wanted to do it ever since the trip to Sweden last year, where transactions with actual tangible corona have become pretty rare. And I started thinking, it'd be nice not to have cash, just for security. At the end of every night, we have to count the register. I mean, it's a tip out, it's 10, 15 minutes a night times 365. That's a fair amount of time. For Storm, saving all that time is worth way more than the fees he pays on every swipe of a credit card. So after the trip, he put it to his staff. Should we go cashless? Everyone said no, like simultaneously. So I just let it go. His bartenders didn't want to alienate customers who preferred to pay their tabs with bills. Another restaurant in the plaza had faced a real backlash when it stopped accepting cash. But those concerns disappeared when the coronavirus came. We're seeing um, the use of cash decline as people become very conscious about what they touch um, and how they engage with each other. That's Jody Kelly, CEO of the Electronic Transactions Association. 
She says Southland is part of an existing business trend away from paper money and towards plastic that COVID-19 has only accelerated. As people get used to paying, you know, shopping and paying and engaging in commerce in those different ways and find that it's convenient and secure and, and again, from their perception, safe, those are trends that I think that will endorse. According to a study by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, cash is no longer king. Debit cards are now the number one payment option in the U.S., and credit cards aren't far behind. Combined, they make up more than half of all transactions. Electronic payments have also been growing in recent years, and they've exploded since the pandemic. Deposits on Square's Cash App tripled in April, and PayPal signed up more than 7 million new users that same month. Online spending is up about a third. Increasingly, companies are ditching physical dollars for digital transfers. Still, there are holdouts. Shops that are sticking to their cash-only policies. Places like Subs by Carl. It's been around the neighborhood forever. It's an institution. That's Jeff Wetzel, a DC resident and big fan of Carl and his subs. They're delicious and cheap and large, and those are all things that I really enjoy. As we spoke right outside the shop on Rhode Island Avenue, a steady stream of customers walked in to pick up lunch, but not Wetzel. He stopped carrying cash when the pandemic hit, and that means no more roast beef subs with extra hot peppers. These are my favorite subs, and I have chosen not to get them anymore to protect my household. Wetzel knows that cash isn't a major coronavirus spreader. He just feels better avoiding it. I guess it's better to be safe than sorry. Got four kids at home, some with pre-existing conditions. And when you start thinking about, oh, am I going to be a risk for my kids? That changes how much, you know, concern you need to have. Because for me, I'm a risk taker, but concerned about the kids, very different. There aren't a lot of cash-only places like Carl's left in D.C. And Wetzel thinks there will be even fewer when this is all over. I suspect that more places will have moved away from being cash-only. Um, and we'll just, society itself will make a switch. He agrees with Kelly. More consumers like him are trading their money clips for virtual wallets. And that'll lead to more businesses like Southland that ditch cash altogether. And that worries Donald Payne Jr. What about the people that can't get credit cards? Then what do we do with them? The Democratic congressman from New Jersey introduced a bill last year that would ban cashless shops. According to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, a lot of Americans, about 6% of all adults, don't have a bank account. And if you don't have a bank account, it's almost impossible to get a credit card or use a mobile payment app or shop online. So they're stuck with cash. And the reason why is money, or the lack thereof. Most unbanked Americans say they can't afford to open up a checking or savings account. But Payne doesn't think that should stop them from being able to shop where they want. His opponents say business owners should be free to decide how they get paid. After all, it is their business. And if they'd rather pay processing fees and turn away a few cash-only customers, why not let them? But Payne says it's the customers who should get their choice here, not companies. When do the consumers ever win in this thing? When do the American people ever win? We're at the behest of these businesses that want us to do business with them but then have all of these, uh, you know, uh, stipulations on how they'll accept payment for uh, their, their goods or services. I mean, it's absurd. 
Payne's bill has attracted co-sponsors from both sides of the aisle, and there's some interest in the Senate as well. But with the pandemic still raging and an election coming up in November, passing it this year is pretty unlikely. Bill or no bill, some companies will go back to accepting greenbacks when things return to normal. But many will stay cashless. Tim Sturm hopes Southland will be one of them. I think I've got my opportunity. I don't intend to go back to accepting cash. And with the coronavirus still raging, Sturm thinks others will follow suit. You're going to see a lot of businesses just say, like, you know what? It's still out there. We're just going to try to do what we can to mitigate the the risk, and we're going to go cashless. And I kind of think that's where, where we're at. So we wanted to understand a little more about where the U.S. ranks on all this. If the future is cashless, then America's way behind a lot of countries. Part of the issue? Infrastructure. A lot of nations have real-time payments clearance. The European Union started clearing payments instantly in 2017, and the United Kingdom made the upgrade back in 2008. Japan was the first country all the way back in 1973. But that doesn't happen here. When you use your debit card, it still takes three days for the money to actually go from your account into the stores. That means there's a risk of overdrafting your account if you make multiple transactions that get approved because you had enough money for each one, but not for all of them when they finally clear. So some Americans are more hesitant to rely totally on their debit cards, while in Europe, the transactions are instantaneous, so no risk there. To probe further about the infrastructure and obstacles in the U.S., we turn to one of the nation's leading experts of financial technology, Chris Brummer, host of the FinTech Beat podcast and a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, speaking with me. I appreciate it. Um, Let's start off with the big question. What's the future money going to look like? We've had physical money in the form of like precious metal coins for millennia. We've had pay- paper money for centuries. And we've had credit cards for decades. And now we have cryptocurrencies and stable coins and digital tokens and things like that. So will those new technologies displace the greenback? Or are they going to merely join the mix of monetary policy options we have? Or are we looking at a financial fad that will eventually just fade away? So, you know, that is obviously a, uh, I guess, the, the multi-billion or multi-trillion dollar question. And, and you know, what, what makes it so hard is really to break it down. There, there are two parts of that question, right? You know, on the one hand is, will anything, any of those options you've identified, will any of them replace the U.S. dollar? Because the U.S. dollar has this kind of hegemonic global dominance in the international monetary uh, system. And, and the question is, will any of these other kinds of options end up displacing or pushing on that dominance? But you know, one of the more interesting questions, even before you get to that question, is, you know, what will money look like? Right? And then once you ask yourself, like, what does money or what will money look like? Then you can sort of ask yourself, well, okay, what kinds of money may be more or less dominant than, than others? And I think that, you know, something that we've been talking a lot uh, both on fintech beat and i think you know when you listen to the uh, international regulatory community 
is that the definition of money is very much up for grabs, you know, and, and sort of thinking through those examples, Jim, that you just mentioned in terms of the seashells and, and gold and silver and, you know, e-money. And now people are getting into questions about tokenized money or cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies. Like what is, what kind of money will we be using? And then there are these sort of more specific questions. When you think about what is money, you know, there's like kind of the traditional economist definition as to like what it is, right? And when you think about money, you think of it as a unit of account, a medium of, of exchange, and a store of value. But what we're seeing is that uh, in a digital economy uh, where you can not only make money electronic, but you can reduce it to a, a string of numbers, you know, those, those three use cases, unit of account, medium of exchange, store of value, that you get all these new kinds of use cases that are added on. And one of them is programmability. And, and that's changing the definition of money in the same way as when you took seashells and you suddenly decided, ah, I'm going to use different kinds of commodities, gold and silver. And then you say to yourself later, I'm going to use paper. This is another one of those sort of evolutionary leaps. And, 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 and uh, for sure, when you look into the future, you're going to see literally the, the, the definition of what we think of as money uh, will certainly uh, be changing. These days, there's only really, it feels like, uh, maybe one or, or two stories that are going on. And the one that I want to talk about uh, is the coronavirus pandemic. And I'm wondering if you think it will have a lasting impact on our use of cash and the future of payments in general. So it's, it's definitely going to have a, a major impact. Right. I mean, um, when you think about e-commerce, you know, we're, we're all sort of stuck at home or if you're working, you're socially distanced from others and you're trying to minimize the extent to which uh, you do anything outside of your job and, and staying home. And so people are increasingly uh, reliant on electronic ways of, of doing commerce. And the big story that we're used to hearing is, is, is Amazon and people using Amazon um, for their shopping, for their, for their groceries and, and, and for in-home deliveries. But there's also this financial side to it, which is how do you pay for things, right? And, and this idea of contactless payments is getting supercharged in a world of the coronavirus. And it was really highlighted as well um, with the whole PPP loan question, right? You know, when the coronavirus came to the United States, the United States government wanted to get money out to people as quickly as possible. But in many instances, the way in which that was done was through a paper check in some instances, which, you know, when you think about it, how challenging a paper check is, you know, you have to wait if you're a small business in the mail for, or, or at least wait for that check to arrive. You know, you wait a couple of days, maybe a week. Once, once you get that paper check, you know, you put on your hazmat suit and your mask and everything else to walk over to your local bank, right? You, know, you go to the bank, you deposit the check, and then you have to wait several days for it to clear. And that's a cumbersome system. It's a system that raises certain kinds of public health questions. And, and, it, and it's one that, again, is really accelerating this conversation on digital payments, e-money, and the like. Uh, not just this kind of efficiency argument, but now the coronavirus has introduced an entirely new public health side to that conversation. So let me, let me ask you about that, you know, the efficiency argument. A lot of other countries had similar programs to the Paycheck Protection Program, and they were able to get the money out to small businesses more efficiently through their tax systems and direct payment systems that they have prior to the pandemic had set up. And my question is, why do we need to look towards 
a digital token or digital currency instead of just having some of the real-time payment systems that Europe has enjoyed for a couple of uh, years now? Well, well, two things. Number one, I mean, it's hard to put into words just how antiquated the U.S. payment system is compared to all of our international peers. And, and what you're observing is that, um, for sure, other countries almost, I mean, as, as I, I had an interview a while back with the head of the BIS's um, fintech initiatives, you know, he said, right now, you know, some of the most technologically advanced countries are in, in places you wouldn't think of. Like, if we could all be Kenya, we would have been just fine, uh, frankly, uh, in the wake of, of this particular outbreak. It's surprising and, and, and really um, unfortunate that here in the United States that we don't have real-time payments. But what you'll also notice when you look at the world and what, where the world is heading is a lot of interest in trying to think through, well, what more can we do beyond facilitating um, certain kinds of payment rails that allow for 24-7 sort of instant uh, payment and, and, and settlement? And what you're seeing is those same groups of countries, um, you're mentioning the, the European Union, but I mean, you know, when you think about what, what China is doing, Sweden, um, lots of countries in, in, in Asia, Southeast Asia, are trying to figure out, well, because you can program money, can you make money itself into a kind of platform on top of which you can provide other kinds of services to help facilitate not just payments, but things like financial inclusion, right? And that is part of the conversation that people are trying to get to. And at some points in time, I, I kind of wonder to myself, you know, weirdly enough, when it comes to payments and e-money, we're kind of like how people talk uh, in some ways, I, I suppose, like like Africa, right? You know, people say, okay, it doesn't make any sense if you're in Africa to lay down the wires when everyone's operating right now with mobile technology, right? Like, like you need to sort of skip or jump up the, the evolutionary chain and you don't have to worry about laying down all these wires. You can go straight to mobile sort of forms of communication. It, it's worth exploring, and I, and I don't know entirely, but it is worth exploring how far behind is the United States and whatever we decide to do, I think that the best and optimal course of, of policy is going to be thinking, well, what's the most achievable high-tech uh, solution when it comes to financial services and payments and financial inclusion? And whatever we think is achievable, whether or not it be you know, real-time payments or whether or not it be some kind of tokenized currency, that's what we should be going for, right? Like, like we shouldn't be going to anything other than the most likely form of technology that we can achieve that is also the most advanced, right? Um, and, and I think how that plays out is going to be really interesting. Um, one last little little tidbit, to the extent to which any particular technology um, is experimental or is more um, unlikely to be achieved, you know, then you need to think through, well, what are the building blocks that you need, right? And at a minimum, it seems to me, a real-time payment system um, is something that you, you'd want. But, you know, the question is, what else do you want? And, and I think that's going to be one of the really interesting policy conversations here in the United States. It's taking a while, but, it, but, but we are heading in that direction. Yeah, so, you know, it's not an either-or. That's right. Uh, you, you're saying that, you know, the Fed announced, I think, last year that they're going to do their real-time payment system, replace the antiquated system you just described. And when that happens, we'll have pretty instantaneous clearing of checks, essentially, and transactions. Um, and that should happen in addition to perhaps really exploring these further out, more sci-fi sounding 
ideas of what money can be. Well, 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 well you know, one of the also interesting things, and I, and I don't know right now, I don't have the, 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 the specific facts, but um, there is some sense that that Fed system may take several years to roll out, right? Which then raises this very interesting question of, okay, by the time that real-time payment system rolls out, will the sci-fi things that we talk about suddenly seem themselves to be quite mundane? Right? particularly since other systems, other countries in the world already have their real-time payment systems and are working for things that may sound sci-fi to us, certainly doesn't sound very sci-fi to them. You know, like what is that dialogue going to be? Or is it just a question of, of political uh, pressure, right? You know, that like can't, you know, is, is this, do we need to readjust and, and, and focus on the speed of the rollout of some kind of federal, you know, um, um, real-time payment system Precisely because if we wait too long, by the time we do it, it won't matter anymore because there will be some kind of other technology that's that's already faster, better, not just more efficient, but even more inclusive. But you know, I think um, what I try to do, and and I think a lot of people I talk to, you just sort of have to keep an open mind and just sort of make judgments as as more and more information comes your way. All right, so we got to do it and think about it as we're doing it. Absolutely. Which we are capable of doing, America. We are capable of thinking and doing at the same time. We've, we've, we've been very good at it in the past, and we can continue to do so. All right. Well, I think that's a good one to end on. Uh, Chris, thanks for uh, joining us. Okay, cool. Bye-bye. While making this episode, a colleague asked me about the cost of making money, like physically printing dollar bills. And honestly, I hadn't thought about it until then. But here's the kicker. The U.S. Mint makes money in more ways than one. The Mint's budget in 2018 was $2.7 billion, but it brought in $3 billion by doing things like selling commemorative coins. While the Mint socks away some of that profit for a rainy day, most of it gets sent on to the general treasury. Who knew? I'm Jim Saxa for CQ Future. Stay with us for the next episode.